church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week. And that was Hosanna, the single from their album Fading into the Light by The Gloria State, my good buddy Dave Moore. It's an excellent album and I highly recommend it. Stop by, stop by my website rather and find more information on The Gloria State at www.catholichack.com. Well, this week, we're going to continue our discussion from last week on the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. There just wasn't enough time, and I couldn't say all that I wanted to. So it was gnawing on me all week, and I decided, well, instead of moving on in A Father Who Keeps His Promises, I think I will just cover some more material on that doctrine. It's a very important one. It's the source and summit of our faith, according to our catechism. Well, before we begin, we always say a prayer. So let's, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all glorious and powerful God, we come before you again to just praise your holy name. We seek your inspiration, dear Father, in this subject, this all-important doctrine of the true presence of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, God Almighty in the Blessed Sacrament to give us food for the journey, life abundantly. Please, dear Father, inspire us with the words. Give us the grace we need to come to better understand this blessed doctrine that you have given us through your church. We seek this in your mercy. We pray for the intercession of all who listen. We pray and ask our Blessed Mother to intercede for them by whispering their names into the ear of her Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Well, last week we we set the stage for the discussion this week. And it's so important, this discussion, that I just really felt like I needed to do a, a part B to follow up on some major points, some questions that you might face, you know, whether it's at work, at church, 
walking down the street, your neighbor, who knows, loved ones, relatives, it always comes around one way or another. We're questioned on this doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So there's a couple of more points that I do want to go over. But we set the stage last week. What we said was, if there is a priest, then there must be a sacrifice. And a lot of folks will admit, okay, yes, uh, Jesus is a priest. We, we see that. We recognize that. Especially when you read Hebrews, it's, it's, it's hard to miss. You'd have to be you know, going out of your way to, to miss the fact that Jesus is the high priest. The new high priest offering himself up and sitting there at the right hand of God in the throne in heaven. Well, what they don't seem to get is that those 12 men were also priests, instituted there in the upper room, ordained as priests to offer that sacrifice there on the altar of every Catholic church around the world, fulfilling Malachi 1, where we see that there was a prophecy that the day would come when a clean, unbloodied sacrifice would be offered everywhere around the world and all the, even the Gentile nations at all times. It would be offered. And so that's exactly what we're seeing now in the Catholic Church. There on the altar, the priest, he gets to be in persona Christi. He gets to stand in the place of Christ. Christ is using that man, using his faculties, you know, for his own purposes by calling down our Lord and therefore changing, transubstantiating the bread and the wine into the body and the blood, the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ to be given out as food for the masses. Just like in the wilderness, we saw where what Moses did, he prayed to God and bread came down from heaven and that bread was given to the people and the people ate in abundance. And our Lord in John chapter six, in the wilderness, after he had, or actually it was before he in the wilderness, what did he do? He took two pieces of bread and he, he took them, he blessed them, he broke them, he gave them to the twelve, and the twelve distributed. They fed all the masses, and there was so much left over that each of the twelve had a basket full, twelve baskets full, symbolizing that through these twelve men, the grace of God himself, Jesus Christ our Lord, would feed the people, feed the masses, and there is more than enough to go around. And then after he feeds them in the wilderness, what does he do? He walks on water. Again, another type of Moses. There, Moses walked through water. He walked through the Red Sea after the miraculous parting of the sea. When our Lord, you know, kicked up the wind and parted the sea, Moses walked on dry ground across. Well, our Lord is much greater than Moses, so much so that he doesn't have to walk, you know, through the sea. He walks on top of the sea. And so, unlike Moses, who had to pray and ask God to feed the people, our Lord feeds the people himself through his own action, because he is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And so we see these symbolisms, these these types, these foreshadowings coming to, to fruition in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the comparing and contrasting of Moses to Jesus is very significant if you're really going to understand what's going on in John chapter 6. And there in John 6, we, we talked last week, we read a, a chunk of it where our Lord repeats himself over and over again. This is my body. You know, you must eat my body. You must drink my blood if you are to have life within you. And then he said, goes on to say, I will raise you up on the last day. That if you do not eat my body and you do not drink my blood, you have no life within you. This is very, very literal language. He repeats himself over and over and over again. Now, we've all been to school. When you, when you were in school and the teacher repeated themselves over again, 
Was that an important point? Did you have to write that down? Because chances were that was going to be on a test somewhere, right? Right. Our Lord is repeating himself. And there's a test. Trust me, there's a test. It's coming. Are you ready? Write that down. Our Lord repeated himself over and over and over. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then what happens in John 6? If you've read John 6, you'll know that his disciples, they get scandalized by this. What is this guy talking about? Eating his flesh, drinking his blood. This is cannibalism. This is forbidden in the law. We can't drink and eat his flesh and blood. This is ridiculous. And they leave him. They walk out of him. And our Lord, he says to them, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. I was only speaking figuratively. It was a metaphor. Hello. No, not once does he correct them. Not once does he call them back and say, hold on, guys, I'm only kidding. No, not once. He lets them go. And he turns there to his his 12 apostles and says to them, are you two going to be leaving me? And what... Who speaks up? St. Peter, of course. He's always the one to speak up for everyone. What does he say? Lord, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, of course, but he says, Lord, I got to tell you, I am scandalized by this, what you've said. This is a hard saying, but where else are we going to go? You alone have the words to eternal life. St. Peter recognized how hard a teaching this really was. But he also endorses the fact that this is extremely literal. This wasn't symbolic or figurative or metaphorical, allegorical. No, this is literal. Our Lord said, you must eat my body and you must drink my blood if you're to have life within you. And St. Peter is scratching his head going, oh my. This is the uh, this is the point where you know the going get tough and the tough get going. This is the point where the straw broke the camel's back. I can come up with more cliches here, but this is the point where the weak start to walk, and the strong stand firm. And they stood firm, even though they didn't quite understand. They stood firm, even though they were scandalized. Those 12 men stood firm, with the exception of Judas, of course. This was the point where his heart really starts to darken and get hard, because he is completely scandalized by this, and this is where he starts to plot the the betrayal of our Lord. But then we go on in John 6, and we're often told there at, at the end of this chapter about how the you know, our Lord says, well, the, the flesh is of no avail. It is the spirit that gives life. We are told so often by critics of the church that say, see, he says the flesh is of no avail. It is the spirit that gives life. And so, therefore, this tells us that we don't have to eat his body and drink his blood. That It's not literal. It doesn't really mean what you say it does. Let me ask you a question. If that's true, can you name me one place in anywhere in any book of the Bible where any, where the word spirit is being used and employed, and it also it's meant to be figurative, to be symbolical. At what point does spirit become not real? I mean, you tell that to the Holy Spirit. You, I dare you to, to pray to the Holy Spirit and say, you're not real because you're a spirit. I mean, that's silly. You and I both know it's silly. Of course it's real. The Spirit is extremely real. It's more real than our what we see in front of us as reality. And so when our Lord says the flesh is of no avail, he's not talking about his flesh. He's talking about our flesh and the flesh, the ways of the flesh of this world. And his Spirit is, of course, is, is efficacious and powerful. 
But it's by that will, that spirit, that we are given the sacrament. And because he said so, we say, amen, I believe. So John 6, power, powerful, powerful chapter in the discussion on this topic. And I highly recommend you go back, you reread it, take your time through it. Now, here's a, one more point about John chapter 6. In my conversion uh, experience, when I was trying to come into the church with my heart, I was already a Catholic, but I was not fully Catholic because I was still reserving myself, still saying, uh, dissenting from the church, still saying, well, I don't believe in that real presence of Christ in the Eucharist doctrine. I don't believe you can pray to Mary. I don't believe this. I don't believe that. Well, I looked up every word in John chapter 6 in the original Greek, just so I could get a better sense how literal was our Lord even talking. And he uses words like sarx to, to describe his flesh. When he says, you must eat my flesh, the word employed there is sarx. It's, it, it literally means hunking, uh, like a hunk of dripping meat. Like you can just see the blood dripping off of it. Literally, it's a hunk of meat. I mean, he was being very literal. It's very literal language. Like think if you went to the butcher shop and picked yourself up a steak and you held the steak up, that's sarks. And then he, he goes, he uses other Greek words that describe the chewing, gnawing, very literal words to chaw, to, to gnaw, to munch, to chew, you know, not symbolical. There was other words he could have used, he could have chosen to use to describe these things in a more symbolic way, but he didn't. The words we have that are handed down to us by the gift of the charism, of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, again, very real, not fake, uh, is literal. So we have absolute assurance here that our Lord is giving us this doctrine and he's, he's foreshadowing it here in this discourse in John chapter 6. The day will come when he will give us his body and his blood and we will have to eat it. Just like in the Paschal uh, feast there in, in Exodus 12 where uh, Moses told the people they had to eat the lamb. There was no choice. You had to eat it. And here in John 6, our Lord, who is the fulfillment of of that Passover feast, he is the new lamb. That's what we see in, in John's gospel as John the Baptist sees our Lord coming. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the fulfillment of the Passover feast. That's what we read last week in the catechism that the sacrament of the Eucharist is the fulfillment of the Passover. And so we must, just like that lamb has to be eaten, we must eat our Lord, the Passover lamb, the new lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he is depicted in Revelation as what? A lamb standing as if slain. Very, very important, very, very uh, rich, ripe with, with just ultra-literal meaning. So go back and reread John chapter 6 and really ponder and meditate on it, I think you're going to get a lot more out of it. So that's basically where we left off last week. And so what I want to finish the time with today is another area where we continually get criticism. People use this to say, look, you know, that it can't be true. Jesus didn't really say, he didn't really mean that this was his body and his blood. This is not a literal meaning. Because, for example, he says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, uh, starting in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. This is a memorial meal. 
You know, I've had discussions with uh, non-Catholics. One in particular was an ex-Catholic who brought this point up. He says, you know, the Catholic Church is completely wrong on their doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He didn't mean it to be, you know, he didn't mean for them to even, you know, have the Eucharist every time they got together. And he didn't mean his body and blood was literally there. This was a memorial meal. Do this in remembrance of me. See? Well, the problem here is we tend to read Scripture like 21st century Americans or Westerners instead of 1st century Jews. Because if we could go back in time and if we could be, you know, just engulfed in the culture of, the, of 1st century Judaism and we were hearing this being said or actually witnessing what was going on and we saw our Lord say, do this in remembrance of me. It would mean so much more than what we, our, our 21st century Westerner ears are capable of hearing and our minds are capable of understanding. Let me back up here. I'll start at the beginning of verse 19. Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is for is the new covenant in my blood. All right. Two two Greek words found in Luke twenty two nineteen that are very significant. The first one is poio. Now, listen, I'm no Greek scholar. So if I mispronounce these, I'm just going to say sorry. You can always look them up, and I'll give you some resources if you like. Just contact me right on my website, and I'll post some links on, on the show notes for the show. But poio is found there in Luke twenty two nineteen. It's rendered in English in this particular translation, which is the Revised Standard Edition, as given for you. This is my body, which is given, or poio, for you. Now, poio is very significant. Poio is used in the Old Testament very specifically. It's employed in sacrificial language. For example, you can find it in Exodus 29, uh, chapter 29, verse 38 and 39. It's there referring to a sacrificial offering. Poio is sacrificial offering made by the priest. Very, very important. Very, very specific. And so our Lord is employing the same word here in reference to his own sacrifice, which we've seen is a is, which is a fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. And we know, that him to, we know him to be a priest. And we know that he also here is instituting his 12 as priests. And there is direct correlation or, or actually direct, uh, you can compare this directly to Exodus chapter 24, where Moses took 12 priests who were offering sacrifices on 12 pillars, took their blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. And we see that same language here in Luke twenty-two nineteen. Jesus, using that same language, poio, sacrificial, okay? Not, not, not uh, symbolical, no, sacrificial. The next word, which is uh, the word we get the English remember, do this in remembrance of me, the Greek word there is anamnesis. Now that's strong. Strong's reference number is 364. The strong reference number for poio is 4160, so you can look them up. Now, Anamnesis is also very specific. You see, in Exodus 12, when 
the Lord commanded the people to hold the Passover feast every year at the same time on the same month every year. He said to do this as a remembrance, as a memorial feast. The same word is used there in the Greek Old Testament, anamnesis. This is very sacrificial language. It's tied up into sacrifice. Specifically, it's also used in relation to sacrifice at the altar in the temple. This is very specific sacrificial language. Again, to the Jews there for the Passover, they're not simply holding a, you know, a 21st century concept of a memorial meal. No, they're recalling the events as if they are live, reliving them, re-experiencing them. And so the Jews, when they hold their Passover feast every year, they are re-experiencing the, the exodus. And so they too have the same concept of reliving that one sacrifice, that one moment in time. They are re-experiencing it. And so our Lord, who is fulfilling that sacrifice, becoming the Lamb himself, he is commanding his disciples there in Luke 22 in the upper room as they, he's now made them priests. He's given them the, his body and his blood, and he's telling them to do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, relive this. As often as you get together, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. Re-experience this. This is the one sacrifice. You see, the sacrifice began in the upper room and ends on the cross. It is one and the same sacrifice. It's called the fourth cup. There's a whole talk given by Scott Hahn on this subject. You can Google it. You'll get so much more out of it than you're ever going to get from me. But you'll see what I'm talking about. That sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice, the, un, the, the sacrifice which is bloody on the cross but is unbloody in the presentation of the Eucharist, which is a fulfillment of Malachi 1, that sacrifice is, rem, is a remembrance because every time the church offers the Mass, the Holy Eucharist, it remembers that cross. Not just like some you know, hallmark card kind of, hey, I'm just remembering you today, just thinking of you. No, 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 no. We are representing that sacrifice. So mystically and spiritually, we are transported to the cross there on Calvary. And our Lord is offered up the one time. Not over and over and over and over and over again. No, just the one time. And we are transported through the grace of God. And you might say, well, come on. I I opened my eyes at Mass. I can't see anything going on. Listen, you and I know that we have eyes of flesh. We see things the way this world is laid out. But there is a reality far greater than this world that is that reality of heaven. And when our Lord said, let there be light, Light came into existence. He spoke it into existence. And so when our, when our Lord said, this is my body, it becomes his body. And when he says that heaven touches down on earth and the two meet at holy mass because we are transported there to Calvary, just because our eyes are incapable of seeing it doesn't mean it's not real. Again, spirit does not mean fake. Spirit is 100% real. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Okay, you move on to read the rest of Hebrews. You actually see how we are transported. We are transported to heaven. It says that you have come to to the new Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem. You have come to heaven itself, touched down on earth. And I posted these verses along with a picture that illustrates this perfectly at catholichack.com. Check that out. 
Now, I just want to move on before we run out of time again on 1 Corinthians. Now, in 1 Corinthians, we see St. Paul, you know, in his letter to the Corinthians there, describing this exact point that we're talking about. This is a great insight into that first century church found right here, plainly in Scripture. If we, if we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and look, starting to look around verse 16, I just turned to it right here. It says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Is it not a participation? Very literal. Hello? This body, is it not Jesus Christ? This blood, is it not his blood? His body and his blood. St. Paul is, is reinforcing what we're talking about here. Very, very literal. Now, just move forward to the very next chapter. Starting in verse 23, chapter 11, verse 23 in 1 Corinthians, you'll read, quote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, the cup, after prayer, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Wow. You will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood. Not a symbol of the body, not a symbol of the blood. No, 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 no. The body, the blood of our Lord, if you receive in an unworthy manner. That is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's what St. Paul is saying. He is he is actually repeating himself. He says the words of institution exactly as they're found in the Gospels. He Notice too, there is a pattern that you find in every single institution narrative, whether it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because St. John didn't use an institution narrative. But there's this, the format, the, the pattern is the same. He takes bread into his hands. He says the blessing. He breaks it, and he gives it to them, the twelve. It's always the same. Compare and contrast that to John 6. When our Lord feeds the multitude there in the wilderness, when he takes those, the, the little the bread that he has, the, the, I think it's five loaves and the two fishes, he takes the bread, he says the blessing, he breaks the bread, he gives it to the twelve to feed the rest. Same exact pattern. Painstakingly, exactly the same. Why? Because this is my body, he goes on to say in the, in the Gospels and here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is abundantly clear, abundantly clear at this point that the church absolutely believed it from the beginning, out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there witnessed in the first century by St. Paul. But now let me read to you really quickly a snippet also 
from the first into the second century by St. Ignatius of Antioch, a disciple of St. John himself. In 110 AD, in his letter to the Romans, he says, quote, Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins which and which the, the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. That's 110 A.D. And there is so much more I could read. The Didache. Uh, there's other quotes from St. Ignatius. How about Justin the Martyr in 155 A.D. describing the Mass to a perfect detail. It's actually quoted in length in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It is the Mass that you and I attend today. And when we skip to the book of Acts, there, before the, the upper room and the tongues of fire, we see an instance of St. Peter having to call, convene the twelve so that they could cast lots and replace Judas who hung himself. What does it go on to say? It says at the end of uh, Acts chapter 2, it goes on to say that they partook of the breaking of the bread every day and the prayers. They remembered our Lord every day. This is the Mass. There on the pages of Scripture. There after the ascension into heaven of our Lord, they were remembering him, anamnesis. They recalled the upper room and relived it. Well, okay, that's going to really do it. I'm not going to do a part three next time. So next time we are going to move on in our study of a father who keeps his promises. If you have any questions, give me a call at 713-568-6277 or send me an email at catholichack at gmail.com. Once again, stop by the website for show notes and links and some you know useful resources at www.catholichack.com. Well, until next time, God bless you. From the Catholic Underground.